Tonight we're going to, I'm going to talk about my favorite subject. Anger, aversion, don't like. My favorite subject. I feel it all the time. I'm always irritated with something. I don't like something. I can see it easily in my life. And it wasn't always a practice thing. Um, I think for the bulk of my life, this aversion or anger started out as me needing to fix the world. And um, with good reason, you know, because I grew up in a very traumatic household and there was a lot wrong with the world. And so I had a lot of work to do. And then, of course, I'm a Virgo, so we definitely see all the wrong in the world. So this idea of um, something being wrong with the fact that I was irritated all the time didn't make any sense to me. I was only irritated all the time because there was so much to be irritated about. And this is sort of the way the poisons operate. We don't see them as poisons. We see them as um, kind of like responding to the world the way the world is. So here, if I get irritated all the time, it isn't something that I'm doing. It's something I, it's the, it's the um, sort of the implication of what's going wrong in the world in that moment. And that's, this is sort of the genius way that the Buddha got around this human way of responding to life. And in a way, we respond to life based on this perception of what we think is happening. And so this quarter, we've been talking about this greed, hatred, and delusion. I think this is the first this is the only talk that I'm going to give on aversion. Um, and, and, and I want to talk about it. I want to encourage you to, I'm hoping, however I talk about it, that in the end, you can begin to look at this aversion in a different way, a different light than what we usually do. So aversion generally, I mean, this is the end of the month, so you've heard from many different people talking about aversion. And we all have a different kind of way of expressing it because one, we all feel it very differently. But it is this resistance or pushing that happens in the world, this pushing against whatever's going on. And um that pushing uh, most times feels like it's something that must be done. I must do something about this wrong. And so I'm going to kind of talk about aversion in relation to delusion because part of our ability to practice with this 
it has to be based in this willingness to see the delusion in this pushing. And this is very difficult for us to see. It's not like, um, it's not like we don't know we're irritated. I knew I was irritated. It's not like we don't know we're mad. I know that. Sort of like with Mary Oliver. I know what I know. But it does not feel wrong to be mad. It doesn't feel wrong to be irritated about something. And so without this feeling that something is wrong, then we will continue to just be mad at anything that doesn't go the way we want it to go. And we have very little, um, very little uh, desire to change that because it's wrong. It's very simple. So we can talk about aversion and we can talk about hatred as Dhamma and say, oh yeah, I can remember. Some of you may have heard me share this, but I remember going to Rodney and saying, I, my anger is out of control. I got to do something about it. Something happened. My nephew got shot and the anger from that, from his, uh, homicide was too much for me to bear. So the anger got overloaded and I was afraid I was going to snap on somebody. I was going to go to jail, lose my job. I went to Rodney and I'm like, you got to help me. You got to help me deal with this anger. Because now the anger feels wrong. It's too much, right? It's, it's not me fixing the world. I'm out of control and I can't uh, manage this. And Rodney said, well, don't worry about the anger. Look at your irritation. <laughs> He didn't understand. <laughs> he did not. He did not know or understand an angry black woman. So I had to help him, and I said, "Rodney, there's no irritation. I go from zero to ninety in ten seconds. That is a problem I need to fix." He said, "Tori." It's aversion. There's nothing to do about this anger when the anger is here. It's already here. Whatever it is, already done. You got to look at your irritation. I said, I don't get irritated. He said, well, how do you know? You don't look at it. I'm like, whatever. Okay, fine. I'll look at my irritation, but I don't get irritated. And so I started looking at little irritations, little things, you know, it was nothing. I could, I could just get past that. That wasn't the problem. The problem was when I went from zero to 90, but the irritations were little minor blips that I could kind of suck up and I could tolerate that. Okay, it's wrong, but I don't have to do nothing about it. I don't have to do nothing about it. And gradually I started noticing what this irritation was like, what was really happening with this irritation. 
I tell the Thursday night group that you should call all your aversion hatred. Not aversion. Aversion seems kind of soft and, you know, smoothed over. You got to call it hatred because that's pretty much what it is in the mind when you start looking at it. Now, when I saw this irritation was I used to catch the bus to work and every day, every day, I would come running out of my apartment. I live two blocks from the bus stop and every day I would come running out of my apartment, run to Broadway, and the bus would be driving by. And I would cuss out this bus driver in my mind. I mean, I reamed him from one side to the other. I just bitterly, I talked about his people, his family, his kids, everybody. I would sit there and just shred him to bits because he did not wait for me. And he knew I was running just a little late. But what I didn't realize is that that irritation stayed with me all on the bus. And then when I would get to work, it would begin to pile up a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. And I started noticing these little irritations that I thought I was dealing with was just clumping together, clumping together. And I wasn't dealing with him at all. I was just ignoring him, like swatting away a little mosquito. And the mosquitoes, you know how they come right back and you swat it, comes right back, swat it, comes right back. And then boom, you just kill it. I mean, you've been dealing with it all this time, and if it had just left, it wouldn't have died. And that's what would happen with my aversion. I would just swat, 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 until I got tired of swatting, and I would take it out on someone, anyone. It didn't matter, defense attorney, co-worker, family, mostly family, but it didn't matter, store clerk. That's what's happening to us. That's what's happening to us, uh, all these people that you hear that are losing it on workers and everything. We've been sitting in this three years of, of um, this COVID kind of isolation, kind of swatting at flies. And now the slightest thing sends us over the edge. We just cannot tolerate it. Can't tolerate anything. This is why these, uh, this is why greed and hatred and delusion are called poisons because they eat us from the inside. We don't know we're being poisoned. We think we're just adjusting to life, dealing with life. When I watched myself miss this bus and get angry every time, that's when it began to dawn on me that it's not the bus driver's fault that I missed the bus. He's on time. 
that somehow it became clear that I should just leave five minutes earlier. That's all I got to do, five minutes. I probably could leave two minutes earlier and I could make it. It's only two blocks. So then I started seeing this major resistance to leaving earlier. I would not leave earlier. That somehow, if I left earlier, then it wouldn't be about the bus driver. It would be about me. And I would not. I tried everything. I'd get up earlier. I did all this stuff. And inevitably, something would arise right before it's time for me to leave. I'm just going to fix this last little thing. I look at the clock. I'm late. Run out of the house. Get to the bus stop. Bus driving by. And I would sit there angry. We have to see this. This is the problem. This is what practice is about. It's not making me better. I have to see the utter futility of what it is that I'm doing. I have to see that what I am doing is in no way solving the problem, that I am the problem. I am killing myself with all of this resistance and aversion. And that at some point, I'm going to have to free myself from that. This is what Rodney was pointing to. I kept getting stuck in the rage. And I, it was so quick. Of course I can't stop the rage. I mean, it's too quick. It's bigger than me. It was faster than me. I couldn't even see it. So it's easy for me to say, I wish I could stop being such a rageaholic, but it's so quick, it's so habitual, I can't stop it. And then I started practicing, and I started seeing this kind of constant putting myself in situations where I would get rageful. This way of practicing that Rodney was pointing to me is a little different than the way psychology looks at things. Because in order for me to actually see this anger process, I needed the three characteristics before. I needed the three characteristics that we talked about last quarter. You have to be able to see that this is all a flux. It's all moving. It's flowing. It's not some permanent identity of me. It's not me. I'm looking at a flow of things that rise and pass and rise and pass. And I can see it. And I can begin to see the dukkha that arises in relationship to my own relationship with the moment, to my own opinions about the moment. It's not rising in relation to the driver. It's not even rising in relation to my leaving the house late. It's rising in relation 
to this habit pattern of leaving the house at a certain time. That's what, it's not even personal. It wasn't even some great justification. It was nothing. It's just this habit that I had a habit of leaving the house at a certain time. And I used to leave the house at that certain time because I drove my car. And for years I would drive my car to work and there was parking. And because I worked at the precinct. So I work at the precinct and I could just park my car where the officers parked their car. Then all of a sudden my job changed and I'm back on the trial team. And now to park downtown was like stupid, the cost of it. So I'm not going to park. I said, I just live, a, I live on Capitol Hill and I'm going downtown. I'll catch the bus. But I could not shift the habit of leaving my job at the time that I was used to leaving when I drove my car. See how nice. It's so simple. It's this habit that I do. And I can't change that. And so instead, I want the whole world to change and shift and adjust itself so that I can do the things I want to do without this difficulty. And that is impossible. This is why we look at aversion. It is impossible. I mean, it might seem like, duh, but I'll just say it just for our own edification, just in case anyone else in the room is thinking like me. It is impossible for all the eight billion people in the world to have the world set up the way they want it. It's really impossible for that to happen. But all 8 billion of us are shoving the world around to try to make that happen. We're shoving and pushing and trying to get the world to be in relation to the way I want it to be because I can't do anything else. This practice the Buddha was masterful because his whole framing was about how to get us to look at what we're doing without all of this self-blaming, shaming, hatred that we do to ourselves. So I spent a good, maybe, I think it was probably about six months to a year watching all my little irritations after I saw this thing with the bus. If I had been doing this from a psychological point of view, I would have been in a lot of shame because I saw a lot. I heard myself cussing people out and I just saw how mean I was whenever I would get mad about something. Whenever I didn't like something, I would get mad. I got mad at people 
because they did things that they wanted to do, but I didn't think they should do that. I would get mad at them. This doesn't sound familiar to you guys, does it? <laughs> they wanted to do it. My kids would want to do something, and I would get mad at them because I don't want them to do it. I got mad at everything. I got mad at things that went the way I wanted it to go, but I wasn't satisfied with it. I didn't like it as much as I thought I would. I bought a car that the dealer convinced me that I wanted, and I think I wanted it at the dealer, but then when I got home, I didn't really like it. And every time I would get in that car, I would get mad that the dealer persuaded me to buy a car that I didn't really like. It didn't matter. I got mad at a lot of stuff. And I just started noticing how often I was mad. How often I was irritated. If somebody... If I were in the grocery store line and somebody needed a price check, I would get mad. <laughs> it didn't matter. If a kid dropped their ice cream, I would be mad. Because, you know, like, why would a parent let a kid hold an ice cream that's too big for them? Of course they're going to drop it. I just could not believe the amount of anger and aversion I begin to see. This is what happens in practice. We all have seen things like this. We all practice with this way of being in the moment with something and begin to see something. It's the insight part of insight practice. So we are Practicing to see something. And if we're not careful, we will start judging ourselves. We will start thinking that what we see is about me. And then, of course, we'll just get mad at what we see. All the judging, all the comparing we do, all of this stuff that we do uh, to try to make the moment more enjoyable is all we're doing. And we think we know how to make the world, that moment, whatever that moment is, more enjoyable. And that's what we're trying to do, is just make the moment more enjoyable. But we're trying to make the moment more enjoyable for me. That's it. I don't really care whether it's enjoyable for other people, for me. And just to make sure that we're clear about it with aversion, we have to have some kind of self-righteous justification because we will not accept that we're just trying to make the world better for me and everybody else is just going to have to get it on their own. We, we don't really want to admit that. And so instead, we make it seem like in this kind of fuzzy way that we don't want to be mad but we kind of have to be mad because this is really not right. 
See how poisonous this is? Very poisonous. So you can think of the response to aversion and this hatred, what the Buddha pointed to as the antidote or the medicine for this kind of hatred is softness, kindness, which is kind of weird because I couldn't understand. First of all, I hated metta. How in the world could metta just being happy, nice, kind, friendly, how can that deal with the wrong stuff in the world? It doesn't seem like it would make any sense. And I don't think metta is designed to fix the wrongs in the world. It's designed to shift your perception just a tad bit so you can see that what you are perceiving as wrong in the world is really just the world. Ajahn Chah said, if something shouldn't be, it wouldn't be. God, think about that a little bit. If it shouldn't be, it wouldn't be. But I got a lot of things that I could say shouldn't be this way. I think I'm, I see a lot of wrong in the world, and I'm like, it shouldn't be that way. I think what he's saying is that it would be nice if people were not as mean and as cruel as they are, but they are. It would, be, it would have been nice if I was not as mean as I was, but I was. I didn't admit it, but I was. So instead, what ends up happening is when you're practicing with hatred, you need a counterweight that will help you see exactly what you're doing. You have to see it in reality. I had to see the meanness, the truth of it. Not, oh, Tori's so mean. It's not that. But I had to see meanness showing up. I had to see hatred showing up. And the only way to see that is not with eyes that are using hatred as the lens. You have to see it with a different kind of lens. You have to see it with eyes that can see love, that can see kindness, that can see softening. And that kind of a lens, when you start looking at the world with that lens, you can see the hatred that's happening in contrast to it. Hatred can't see hatred because it feels justified. But metta can see hatred. Kindness can see meanness. And so I had to start cultivating kindness, which is, was very 
difficult for me. But it was only as difficult, I'd say, as uh, my willingness to look for softness. And that's how I did it. I started looking for softness. I started, Rodney used to do these things called, um, these diets, some of you might remember, we used to get in a diet and ask this repeating question over and over and over. Somebody else sitting across from you asking you a question, and then you would say an answer, and then they would say thank you, and then they'd ask the question again, and just this constant asking the same question, keep saying answers, keep saying thank you, and they keep asking the question. And many people hated those diets, hated it with a passion. But if you were kind of, if you gave into the diet and you took a moment before you answered and you begin to gradually get quiet and only answer what you knew to be true in the moment, not just have to answer it, just wait, don't say nothing see what's true, gradually there would be this second round that would come and you would get to these deep, deep, deep knowings. You would ask the first question and you just kind of answered it. Then there'd be this second question and you could get into this deeper place of beginning to see something. And I started asking myself, where is softness? Where is it? right here, right now. And of course, you know, my mind would say, oh yeah, the cushions are soft, yeah. Rug is soft. Yeah, they're soft. That's it, there's nothing else that's soft. And gradually, I would just say thank you and I'd ask again, where's softness? And I could begin to sense just in this room, the sound of the fan would be soft. And every once in a while, I could feel a little breeze. Oh, that would be soft. And I started noticing soft everywhere. Now, a, a, a mind that can perceive softness, that can perceive kindness, that can perceive tenderness and gentleness, it sees cruelty pretty clear. It can see it pretty easily. It's not difficult for me to see when I'm shoving people. It's not difficult for me to see that hatred as hatred. It wasn't difficult at all. I could see it. And in that ability to see this hatred as hatred because it felt like I was knocking people down. It felt like I was taking a bat and swinging it on people because the eyes that can perceive soft, kind gentleness, any kind of shoving and pushing is very harsh. And I started seeing just how harsh I actually was, just how harsh my response would be. And I find, found myself constantly saying, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean that like that. I'm sorry, I didn't mean that like that. 
all the time. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Didn't mean it. Okay, that was wrong. Shouldn't have said it like that. At work, I started telling the defense attorneys that I was working on being a kinder, gentler government. <laughs> That's the way I would say it. I'm working on being a kinder, gentler government. And it just became this kind of running joke. Can I have the kinder, gentler government? Is that person available? <laughs> I'm saying, no, they are not available. <laughs> I would do things like I stopped taking ownership of anger and tell people, I feel like there's some anger energy around. I don't know where this anger is. I feel anger energy. And my friends would say, colleagues would say, well, why don't you just say you're angry? And I'd say, I don't know whose anger that is. Could be the defendant's anger. Could be the witness's anger. Could be the judge's or defense attorney's. Could be anybody's anger. I don't know whose anger it is, but I feel anger. Could be mine. I stopped this kind of identifying with it because I was practicing. So I'm, I'm cleaning up the eyesight, the perception, the person that's perceiving this hatred and aversion. I am perceiving through different eyes. I'm cultivating uh, skillful means. And I'm uh, beginning to notice, like not be so quick to just judge what's happening. This is what the Buddha called right effort. This is how we do right effort. Whenever you have something, you're like, how do I fix this? It takes right effort. So right effort is this kind of non-judging, present moment awareness. And in this moment, do you know, do you notice the presence of unskillful, what he called unwholesome? Do you notice unwholesome arising? If you notice it, then right effort is abandon that. If you notice it being present, so if I noticed myself snapping at somebody, I need to abandon that and say, okay, I'm sorry, I don't mean this. And at the same time, I'm going to try to prevent myself from snapping on somebody. So you prevent the arising of unwholesome uh, qualities, energies, behaviors that haven't arisen. You prevent that from arising and you abandon it if it does arise. That's, that's what you do on the unwholesome side. And at the same time, you cultivate unrisen wholesome qualities, skillful qualities. I would look for soft, or I would just make jokes about trying to be kinder and nicer. I would um, practice metta for ants and animals and any kind of being. I used to practice metta for my socks in the drawer because... I just would look for anything other than people to practice metta on. 
So if the socks were soft, I would practice metta on the socks. Anything. I knew I had to cultivate metta, but I had such a resistance to cultivating it for people. So instead, I cultivated it with anything. It's cultivating this arising metta. We have to cultivate it. We have to do something to get it to rise. And then if you notice that metta, that kindness, that friendliness has arisen, then you try to sustain it. And you try to sustain it by, you know, continuing your practice. You try to sustain it by uh, including more. You just do whatever you can to sustain it. And then it'll pass away and you will be back to being mad about something again. And you try to abandon that, prevent it from arising, cultivate metta. It's very systematic what the Buddha practiced. You can't take it personal. If you take it personal, the whole thing falls apart. Because now you got to fix yourself. And if you got to fix yourself, something's wrong. It's, it just generates all this shame and um, uh, it's habitual. And so you can't make yourself stop doing a habit. So you're just doing all this effort to try to make yourself stop doing something and you keep seeing yourself do it and so you keep getting madder and madder and madder at yourself because you keep doing the very thing you just don't want to do anymore. So instead, the Buddha made practice very practical. If you notice that you're in some rageful state, try to abandon it. Try to let it go. Try to Interrupt it best you can, and then try to prevent it from arising. And if you notice that there's no kindness in this moment, see if you can cultivate it, generate it. Look for something. Do what Rodney would have us do in diets. How can softness be known? How can kindness be known in this moment? And that's what I would do. Whatever the mind said, I didn't care. I would just say thank you. Because, you know, when we sit in the dyads, nobody cared what you said. No one's even listening to you. So you're, they're, they're just worried about saying their thank you. So you just say anything. Thank you. How can kindness be known in this moment? It can't be known. There's no kindness. It's never coming out again. Thank you. <laughs> How can kindness be known in this moment? That's what I would do over and over and over. And I think what happened, this is what I've come to my own kind of judgment around this. I don't know if this is the way the body-mind system works. But I think what happened is that if you keep asking your ordinary thinking mind, the same question over and over and over, and you're kind enough with the response with thank you, so you're not fighting this mind, and you keep asking it like you're, like, please tell me the answer. The smarty pants mind of ours gets confused. It keeps telling you an answer, and it gets confused. And I think it goes to the body and asks the body, 
is this kindness stuff going on? What is it? Do you see any kindness? And then the body can reveal it, can show it. We can see it everywhere. Oh, even branches helping each other out. All kinds of kindness I would see everywhere. It just felt like even the cars stacked up along the road, evenly parallel parked, was such a kind thing. Something as simple as that. I just could see it everywhere. Because I didn't take anything personal, and I'm not trying to fix me. I'm just using these levers of right effort and cultivating kindness. Just trying to see it. I don't know where it's at. I don't know what it is. Is it here? I don't know. Let's ask. Is it here? Do you see it? And then eventually, I got softer and softer and softer. And my coarseness, the coarseness that I had became too coarse for me to be with. And I got subtler and subtler and subtler. And I've told many of you that I overheard my sister tell her granddaughter, who was like 16, she's like, Auntie Tuary is always angry. <laughs> my sister said, yeah, she's always been angry, but she's not mean. And I'm not. I can be angry anytime I want. No one is going to pay for my anger anymore. And that is a it's like we got, I got caught up. It's what Rodney was trying to point to, I think. I was so caught up in the anger. But that was the least of the problem. There was way more to be taken care of. This poison of hatred that I would go around shoving everything. That's what had to be dealt with. I had to see that hatred and let that hatred go. And when I started seeing that, and I started doing this kind of antidote, balancing this hatred that was always there with softness, I didn't have to make myself not be angry anymore. It just happened. It just shifted. The way the Buddha would describe it, I think, is he would say, in reliance on this, you abandon that. So you don't just try to abandon this. I don't just need to abandon the anger. I need to be in reliance on kindness. And then eventually, I will abandon that anger. And that's what happened. So when we're talking about practicing with aversion and this uh, hatred, we have to see it as a poison. It's not the world is just messed up or I'm a terrible person because I get angry all the time. That is, that is too psychological. It's just too much into the psychological realm. And the Buddha is not fixing psychological stuff. He's like, it's a habit. It's not you at all. It's just impulsive, habitual. So if you want to stop, abandon this habitual poison that's killing you, then cultivate what you want to have. Cultivate that.
And when you notice it's here, try to abandon it, but cultivate what you want. Cultivate the kindness, the qualities that are wholesome and skillful. Cultivate that. Abandon this. If you see it, cultivate this. Don't get stuck over here. It's this balanced two feet kind of balancing yourself. Yeah, there's unwholesomeness here. There's wholesome here too. And it doesn't matter. You don't have to do your, you don't have to read the book and say, okay, how do I do it? What do I do? You don't have to do that. You can just cultivate kindness. I don't care how you do it. It doesn't matter. Look for it. Ask yourself, where is it? It's not here. Well, ask again. Thank you. Where is it? It's not here. Okay, thank you. Where is kindness in this moment? Just ask it over and over and over and over. So, I'm going to read another poem by Mary Oliver. One of my favorites. I love Mary Oliver. I don't know. I mean, for someone that didn't like poetry, Mary Oliver's poetry really was the first kind of reason for me to actually um, begin to reconsider maybe poetry is saying something. So this is a great poem that she wrote. It's entitled, What We Want. She says, what we want in a poem. In a poem, people want something fancy. But even more, they want something inexplicable made plain, easy to swallow. Not unlike a sudden, uh, not unlike a suddenly harmonic passage in an otherwise difficult and sometimes dissonant symphony. Even if it is only for the moment of hearing it. So let's sit a moment. We'll let my words kind of uh, fizzle out and see if you have any words you'd like to share. Okay, so let's see if any of you um, have anything you want to share. I don't want you to be afraid to talk about your anger. I've talked about mine so much, you should feel like, well, I'm not as bad as to where he is. So <laughs> no, no shame there. <laughs> Do we need to, oh, I think you have to get a mic. Yeah. 
Oh, I didn't know that. That's okay. Okay. Oh. My, is this right? Yeah. My experience of aversion it doesn't have anything to do with what you just said, and I'm just confused. Well, tell me what yours feels like. Mine feels like the avoidance of pain, of loneliness, of, of the stuff that's inside me, much mm -hmm. more fear-based, not anger. Mm -hmm. I'm not angry that I am lonely. I want to avoid. I want to, I want to push away that loneliness, and only when I let it in do I find ease and peace. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, I just was very confused because anger isn't my mode. Fear might be, and uh, pain definitely is. I, it's, it's what's painful inside me that I wish to be an aversion to. And the more I embrace it, the better I am. I think, I think we're saying the same thing. So I would get angry at the outer conditions and you're angry at the inner condition. You don't have to call it anger. You can be afraid of it. It's still the same kind of, I don't want this. But when you allow it to be, then you, that is like having a kindness to this, um, a fear. So there's a, there's an allowing, an acceptance. So you're abandoning the fear and you're cultivating this kind of kindness or allowance, acceptance that allows this fear to come in. For me, that's what sitting practice is. Is, yeah. that, is that what arises, you, you, you are enabled to sit with far better yeah. than when it's just passing through you while you're I think, going I think to that's the grocery what I, store. You know? Yeah, I think that's what I was pointing to. I say it maybe a little differently than you, but what I was pointing to was I had to learn how to abandon my dislike for the rest of the world's being the way that they were. And what I was really doing is allowing the world to be as it is without this need for it to be the way I wanted it to be. And instead, I could be with my own irritation, my own frustration, my own ir and you would be with your fear, I'm being with my irritation, don't like. But still, in that, it takes a quality of kindness to do that. You're welcome. Oh, go ahead, Austin. Hello, Sangha. Uh, actually, uh, you just, um, um, I felt that I should say something after listening to you as when I wasn't before. And Tori, the thing that, uh, thank you for this talk. What um, struck me was the relationship between aversion and attachment, mm -hmm. that they're two sides of the same coin in some ways. So I have aversion to meetings where there's no agenda for the meeting. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I have this, you know, way of forming agendas and I train people called purpose outcome, outcomes and process. You know, what's the purpose for the meeting? What are the outcomes and what is the process? But then I see that uh, I get attached to having an agenda 
for every meeting. Um, but there's impermanence, you know, Anicca. And so it's impossible that every meeting in life, there's mm-hmm. an agenda that I set and control. Mm-hmm. So then the suffering comes from that attachment. And I, I saw the, when you were talking about aversion, I then saw the attachment yeah. that's driving the suffering. And then um, I have some other things personal that were really fascinating listening to you about this that I won't share. But I would say, I was curious if you could, two things, you know, I see now aversion and I see attachment on the other side. But I also uh, am sensing when I heard the last person talk, you know, I, I saw their aversion, but it sounded like there was attachment on the other side of their aversion. Yes. So what you're pointing to, you're both actually saying the same thing. And it's so we're just translating this into language that makes sense for all of us. But the seeing the, oh, I'm attached to having an agenda at a meeting. That's an easy thing to see. But that's not why you need an agenda. The agenda probably has more to do with the discomfort you feel, like when you're wasting your time. And there's this irritation that begins to gnaw at you when you feel like you're wasting your time. That felt sense is where the poison of hatred is. It's in that. I hate being here. But we can't really say that. So instead, we do the nicety of making it beneficial for everybody and having an agenda. But really, it's that hatred of being, of somebody wasting my time. And then there's this hatred within that someone's wasting my time that you've already judged the people in some meetings as not having anything valuable to say. So why in the world would I listen to them? And that, you can see how it gets very, very, very thick. So the the seeing of this is uh, what your soft eyes are creating. I try to create a talk that's soft enough around something that's quite harmful, that it's soft enough that your eyes can see it. But in truth, when you let yourself say, okay, I'm going to accept a a meeting without an agenda, the truth is it will be painful. It's just that instead of you not feeling your own pain, so what you do is you don't feel your pain of, I hate being in this meeting, you like shove it out there in the rest of the world and we get an agenda made. Okay, let's get the process, how we're going to do this. Okay, now, and you're feeling better. You're feeling happy. Now we got a structure. So you just stay in the structure and everything's good. But the people that maybe don't like agendas, they're not very happy. So what ends up happening is if you don't set an agenda, what you're going to feel is the hatred. And that you're going to need a counterbalance of kindness. This is what you were saying, the acceptance and the, the, the patience that it takes to be in this. And 
not just uh, bear with it. Because the other quality is we can bear with it, tolerate it just so long. That's what I was doing. Tolerating, tolerating until I just can't tolerate it anymore. So you're cultivating a kindness in the moment, trying to help yourself abandon this attachment. Because you can see that's not skillful. Abandon that. Some people, you can ask them, uh, do you want me to set an agenda? And they may say yes. But sometimes you might want to, even if you could set an agenda, even if they know and they're like, Austin, will you set an agenda for us? Because we can't do it. You might want to say, oh, no, I think it's fine. Let's just go free flow it. Let's see what happens. Let's just see if, if we just let our hair down and go loose. <laughs> but you might want to consider seeing what happens so you can really begin to know what's going on. And this means you have to see all of it. You have to see and hear the judgment you're saying about people. You have to see and hear and feel that uh, shoving, pushing kind of energy that how stupid you think they are, how much this is a waste of time. Who hired these people? You have to see all of that and actually cultivate a kindness in the midst of it so that you can actually realize that is way different than I want to be. That is not who I want to be. And then you can begin to um, not just tolerate a meeting without an agenda, but you actually don't need the meeting to have an agenda. You'll be fine. The renunciation is the not forcing the meeting to have an agenda. So you restrain from that. The question was, was that in renunciation? So the, the restraining from doing something that you could easily do to make you happy, you restrain from that. And then you'll notice how uh, mean you are. And you, you will see that, but it's not you that's doing it. It's the habit energy that uh, is basically the ordinary mind's response to not wanting to waste my time. You see? Mm -hmm. Okay. Ah, go ahead, Jean. I got it. Hi. Um, everything you said was like a. I identified with it pretty strongly and um, I've been on this um, trying to get rid of the anger for or deal or cope or however the words are to to kind of work with that over the years and it's still a path and a process and there's there is a half a dozen things that um that I felt aversion for today. <laughs> so, um, uh, but you know, there's, um, I guess the one that feels most, um, important is, uh, um, when I get frustrated with my son, I think that's the one that feels a little tough. 
um, I think, you know, he's 16 years old and that guy is a total slacker. He smells (laughs) (laughs) and he doesn't like to clean up after himself. So, um, so there, there's, there's a lot of, um, parenting there. And there's also like this trying to find that balance of like, you know, how much parenting or when do I just give up and just let him be a slacker and smelly and, you know, that sort of thing. It's just kind of hard to just like, sometimes I feel like I should just back off and, and, um, just let him be who he's going to be. And other times I'm thinking like, you know, my job as a parent is to, raise him um, and get him to know that he should be taking a shower and be respectful and clean up after himself and that sort of thing. It's, it's hard. So we have to mute when they talk. We still, we don't have to do that anymore. Okay. So, yeah, I totally understand what you said. I have boys. I raised them. And the, the thing that I want to see if I can help you see is you have this either or situation. Either because he's a slacker, either I have to shove him into doing the right thing, which I'm sick of doing this now. He should know better now. Either I have to shove him into doing that, or I have to just tolerate this inappropriate behavior. What I just hate. And so that, that aversion makes this whole thing, um, this kind of justified, uh, self-righteous anger. But... There is a way that you can cultivate kindness, not compassion for him, for him and his slackerness. You don't have to do that. You just need to cultivate kindness because if you're going to have any influence in this conduct in the house, like helping him learn how to share a house with other people, you are going to have to do it in a kinder way. That's just the bottom line. And so you're trying to cultivate kindness, not towards him, but just generally. And the difficulty, if you're anything like me, the truth is you're, you hold kindness and niceness as this kind of wimpy, kind of gooey thing, but it doesn't really work. I mean, I've been nice to him. I've been kind. And that kind of energy is, is what the Buddha was saying. That is not what you, you're not trying to solve a problem. If it's about trying to solve a problem, then it's either he does it my way or, you know, we're just going to be fighting. That's not what you're really trying to do. What you're really trying to do is communicate something with him in a way that he will listen to you. And that means you're going to have to cultivate some kindness. You're going to have to cultivate kindness generally, not kindness in the way I say something to him, because that comes across as passive aggressive. So instead, you're going to cultivate kindness generally. Can I just 
learn what kindness is and how does it show up and what is real, real kindness. And then gradually over time, one of two things will surely happen. He will move out and the house will go back to being clean again. Or you'll be able to articulate this to him. You see what I'm saying? It's not about the fixing the problem. It's about you learning how do I stop acting out of conduct that goes against the way I want to be. And that conduct is not you. It's just habit energy. Your parents were like this. You were like this. Their parents were like that. These are the things we all say and do. And, and of course, a really good raised child should not be a slacker. But I could see where 16-year-olds are pretty miserable. Like, what the hell? Who cares? I don't want to do none of this. And so there could be that energy. But I'm not saying that for you to be compassionate and feel sorry for his behavior. What I'm saying is you may be able to have a conversation in kindness if you cultivate kindness generally and learn what it feels like to see and feel softness. There is one thing that I used to do with my kids that worked for me. We used to have this way that if we had a really contentious thing, that we would switch sides. And you have to argue on behalf of his rights to be a slacker. And he has to argue on behalf of your side to buck up and take care of yourself, right? So. You have to do it with honesty, though. You can't fake it. You got to do it. You got to really convince him that he has a right to be a slacker. And he has to really convince you that he really should, if he's living with other people, do the right thing. And you just keep at this conversation until it gets funny. <laughs> and all of a sudden, you're like, wait a minute. <laughs> See, and then, and then you can go back to your normal sides, but now you have a perspective that's a little bit more global than just your own opinion. All right? Good. Thank you. Mm-hmm. What time is it here? It's 10 to. So if no one has another comment, I can actually, you know, Leave at a reasonable time. <laughs> oh, go ahead. Come on up. Sorry, Ray. Oh, no, you're okay. <laughs> you're keeping it. it it's okay, pretty um, traditional. My name is Trish. And, Hi, Trish. Um, so, in the past, I was dealing with a lot of grief. Mm-hmm. And that produced a lot of anger and also just a lot of... Um, like, who cares? I'm not going to do anything. Like, it's not worth it. Like, just resignation. Mm -hmm. And so I was listening to a lot of podcasts about how to deal with grief and how to work through grief. 
And one of the things they said that really stuck with me in one of the podcasts was um, whenever anything happens that you don't like, asking yourself, well, I wonder what good will come of this. And I love that quote. And it's really been helpful for me because it gets me out of the resisting and the making other people wrong part. Mm -hmm. But listening to you tonight, and it also gets me looking for the good, which is kind of like the positive, you know, Mm -hmm. like maybe we just have to go through this to progress as a people or country or whatever. And listening to you tonight, it feels like maybe it's not quite there. Like I'm kind of using that as a kind of like a bandaid or something to not just like, it feels like the acceptance part isn't there, but maybe the cultivating of kindness isn't quite there. I don't know. I just wanted to hear your thoughts. I think, I think that that is, um, that's the cultivating the kindness is what you're doing with that. Where I think you are, um, where I think what the right effort, I think you're not doing is the abandoning the unwholesome. I think you're shifting your attention to something positive. So it's, it's sort of like um, you, you have to feel, it's like I was telling Austin, you have to be willing to feel this hatred and not take it personal. This, to feel your own anger as an unwholesome thing and let that go. Versus... What you do is is similar to me in that you are um, you're, you don't like the outside world, and so for me, I would shove against it, and you are like turning your back to it and coming over here towards nicer. So the cultivation of something wholesome, um, I used to use a similar phrase all things work together for good for those who believe. And so I would just say that. That's like me trying to cultivate uh, kindness and faith in this moment. Okay, that's a good thing. And then sustaining that energy. But you're not, it's not I'm not going to feel this and I'm just going to feel this. That won't work. This will keep coming back because it's habitual. you got to also begin to see the hatred and the poisonous nature of this constant grieving and anger that keeps coming up. you got to see that and abandon that. Know what you're abandoning and cultivate this kindness at the same time. All right, thank you. Mm -hmm. All right, good. Well, oh, I see a hand. Yeah, go ahead, Julie. Hi, uh, thanks, Tuary. That also really resonated with me. Um, I wanted to ask if you had any thoughts on the idea of um, looking at a poisonous attitude, allowing yourself to see it clearly, and not giving it oxygen. Yes. Can you, I I understand, and I totally hear what you're saying about, you know, the far-reaching attitudes, you know, sometimes you just have to force yourself into saying things because you so don't feel it. Um, 
But then you want to look and examine something that's negative and habitual. And next thing you know, it sucked you in. And, you know, I read about not giving it oxygen, but looking at it. And I just wish I were more skillful. So if you have any tips, that would- I think, I think what I would say, this is what I was pointing to, uh, Trish, is that what's your name? Yeah, this is what I was pointing to Trish. We don't have to wallow in that uh, uh, unwholesome. We can abandon it. But we have to abandon it because we know it as being unwholesome. It's sort of like there's a way that we would just assume not even see it. And just, you know, the minute I see the minute I see myself snap at someone, oh, oh, I'm sorry. Okay, okay, okay. And we kind of run away from it. But we're not really seeing the habit nature of it. We're not really seeing the underlying causes that are causing that to show up. And by not seeing the underlying causes, then it just keeps habitually showing up and we keep running away. We just keep trying to get away from it. I'll leave you with this. There's a Tibetan, <laughs> probably is a Theravadan teacher, shouldn't be talking about this Tibetan practice because it's not going to come across right. But there's a Tibetan practice called um, hitting the um, hitting the pig on the snout. Whacking, that's what it's called. Whacking the pig on the snout. And the way the practice, Panla Rinpoche described it as this. He said that uh, with our habits, it's like building a garden outside and it's all very nice and you do a lot of work. It takes you all day, a couple of days to get that garden. You get it all fixed, put a, you know, a little fence around it and you're happy. And then just as the greens start coming up, you wake up one morning, you look out the window and it's all destroyed. And you're like, what happened? So you go back outside and you labor and you fix the rolls again. And, and then you, um, it's all back again. Next morning you wake up, it's all destroyed again. And he's like, okay, I'm laying in wait. Somebody's doing something. I'm going to see. So you lay in wait at night and you see this pig come in and eat up all your veggies or whatever. And so you're like, the next day I'm going to be there when the pig comes and I'm going to get him. So the pig comes the next day and you run out there and you're like, go away, go away, go away. And you notice that you have now stumped on all your veggies yourself trying to get the pig out. And you're like, fix it again. And then you try to create this way where the pig, you try to stop the pig from coming and you get out there in the front and you're like trying to stop it and the pig gets away from you and it still goes and messes up with veggies and ultimately you grab a club and so when the pig comes you whack it on the snout with this club you just hit it and that's it pig doesn't come around anymore it's like that lady's crazy (laughs) goes away so in a way what the buddha's what this is is I think this is an excellent way to teach us with 
what does it mean to work with the unwholesome? It's not, you have to actually work with this unwholesome and begin to see what's happening. And when you finally get a clear understanding that this pig is coming into the yard and destroying the garden, then your actual response is a clear abandonment, a, a clear relationship to this difficulty. But if you're kind of fuzzy in all the knowing, then you just keep adding more difficulty in there. So if you're abandoning some seen unwholesomeness, you just see it and you abandon it, but you know what it is and you see it as being unwholesome and you know it's a habit and you're not following that. I'm not doing that anymore. You've seen it. You've been with it. I'm not doing that anymore. Then that's wholesome. But if you're like just turning away so you don't feel that anymore, but you're not really, you haven't spent any time understanding it for its unwholesomeness and what it's actually, that it's coming from you then that, you're just like fighting with the pig and destroying your own garden. You're just going to keep coming back every day. Do you see the difference? I do. Yeah, I mean, I, I think what you're essentially saying is you have to look at it, but you have to make sure that you're looking at it with the right view. That's right. It's not about you, but you want to understand what it is. You want to understand what you're working with here. So that what you're actually doing is uh, abandoning and preventing the arising of a habit and not just um, pretending like that's not me. I'm, I'm not going to do that anymore. That's more psychological. You could have a therapist help with psychological. There's no problem with the psychological part. But if you're going to do Dhamma, then it has to be this much more... Um, non-self, dukkha, impermanent flow that you begin to notice. Thank you. You're welcome. All right, you guys. Thank you for staying over as usual. Appreciate it. Luckily, there's no uh, announcements tonight. All righty. Thank you so much for your practice. <laughs>